Turn with me, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 40 this morning. Take a break from Luke during Advent, Isaiah chapter 40. This afternoon I hope to enjoy, probably with many of you, a performance of Handel's Messiah. We all have special parts of that that we like, I suspect. I know I do, and one of my favorite things is the way that it begins. There's, of course, the uh, instrumental overture at the beginning, but then the very first voice, the very first word you hear is the solitary, pensive voice of the tenor soloist saying, Comfort ye. Comfort ye, my people, says the Lord. No wonder the Heidelberg Catechism begins that way. What is your only comfort in life and in death? This is a matter to which God speaks. And this is one of the places that he speaks of that in Isaiah chapter 40. And this morning we're going to look at uh, these first two verses, this second uh, Sunday of Advent, and hopefully make our way on down through some more of Isaiah 40 in the next couple of weeks. Let me read it. <clears throat> Isaiah 40, 1 and 2. Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. It's a very brief passage, but I think there are two truths for us to learn here. The first is simply this. God cares about your trouble. God cares about your trouble. You know, there's no trouble so painful. There's nothing which turns trouble into despair so quickly as the realization that Nobody cares. If you're hurting this week as the world rushes madly by in its Christmas uh, preparations, your heart may be screaming, doesn't anyone care? Doesn't anyone even notice the way that my life is coming apart at the seams? This morning I want to reassure you, God cares about your trouble. Listen to the language of this text. Hear God's compassion, even in the word choice here. The very word comfort implies that God understands the affliction and the oppression which fill his people's lives. We need comfort. He speaks of my people. Those are simple little words, but when we understand it in the context of the whole scripture, those are words from the heart of the covenant by which God bound us to himself. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. In other words, God's saying, I haven't forgotten my promises to you. In verse 2, he says, speak tenderly. Literally, speak to the heart that is soothed or, or a re, reassure, reassure. God is concerned about how his prophet speaks to his people. You speak tenderly to them, he says to Isaiah. You be careful how you speak to them. You speak comfort to them. Even as the Holy Spirit directs in Isaiah's word selection, you see God is setting the tone of the message he wants to deliver that he really does care about our trouble. Now what trouble is he talking about? Well actually very little is spelled out specifically here. Verse 2 speaks generally of the hard service of God's people, which seems to have been the result of their sin. 
Oh, but if we view this text in the whole context of the prophecy of Isaiah, the trouble involved, it gets very specific. In chapter 39, God tells of his chastening hand um, uh, that he will bring upon Israel through the Babylonians who would defeat and carry off Israel into exile for 70 years. And then in chapter 40 here, the very next chapter, he spells out the message to be proclaimed when that happens. When all hope for restoration seems gone, here's what you say, Isaiah. That predicted trouble became history. In 586 BC, the Babylonians did invade Israel. They came in three waves. They utterly destroyed the land. People were ruthlessly slaughtered. Those who survived were carted off as captives by the thousands taken to Babylon to be slaves. Their houses and towns were leveled. The city of Jerusalem was burned down. Even the temple of the Lord was desecrated and dismantled. There was not a person in Israel whose life was not full of trouble. You see, whatever trouble we're encountering, it's not greater than theirs. I'm not saying we don't have any trouble. We live in a fallen world, distorted by sin. and Under the curse, life can be a mess, and dying is always just a breath away. And then our own failures further complicate the whole mess, for God does not remove the consequences of our actions. Indeed, he promises that our waywardness will have consequences. But here, even in the worst situation, the situation Israel faced, that's probably worse than anything we face, as they suffered the consequences of their sin, the terrible trouble of their own making, when they had every reason to believe that God was finished with them, that he had abandoned his covenant with them forever, he sent his prophet to proclaim to them the truth we hear this morning. God still cares about you in your trouble. That would be true now if that were the only time the whole Bible said this, but it's not. Listen to some of the other times that God says the same words of compassion to Israel. He sent the prophet Zephaniah to say, In the evening they will lie down, the Lord their God will care for them, he will restore their fortunes. Through the prophet Zechariah, God said, I will restore them because I have compassion on them. Later speaking through Isaiah, the Lord makes this startling comparison. Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me, the Lord has forgotten me. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast? And have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands, says the Sovereign Lord. Make no mistake, God cares about our trouble. And I don't know what trouble you have this morning. I do know that if you brought it on yourself by your own sin, it's more bitter than if just something happened to you and you're a victim. But whatever source, whatever kind of struggle you face this morning, I want you to know that the Lord himself told those who proclaim his word to declare to you comfort for your aching heart. To announce to you hope in the midst of your affliction. To proclaim to you that God cares about your trouble. Comfort Comfort my people, the Lord said. 
but with what comfort? Well, that brings us to the second thing we find in this text, the second truth, this kind of comfort, that God promises to bring relief. God promises to bring relief. Relief is an important word to us these days. Our modern society doesn't seem to endure discomfort very well. When we face trouble, we want relief, and we want it now, thank you. Some of us can hardly endure pain at all of any kind. And so uh, medications which promise relief from pain fill our shelves. Excedrin promises relief in 15 minutes, I saw. Bear Aspirin says you can expect wonders in pain relief. Tylenol just says will make you feel better. And that's what we want, isn't it? We want relief. Not just from physical pain, but from everything else. Maybe a bailout or something. We want relief. So it's good news to our our ears to hear that God promises to bring relief. Now as we talk about this passage, just a little bit of a note here. Anytime we talk about things spoken by the ancient prophets, we see that there's always a a, a two-tiered fulfillment. One part where prophecies are fulfilled right away, and then there's always other parts that look forward to things that aren't yet fulfilled. And that certainly is the case with this prophecy in Isaiah 40. Uh, there, there, there's an already fulfillment of it, and there's some of it that's not yet fulfilled. It fits very easily into that pattern, and especially since Jesus' coming, some of this is fulfilled, and some of it is not yet fulfilled. Now this relief that God promises is found in verse 2. And that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time. In verse 2, there are three parallel clauses, three statements, each beginning with the word that in our English translations. These statements are brief, but they're worth our careful consideration for they suggest the content of the comfort which God's announced. The content of the comfort. Let's look at each one. First of all, God promises an end to the struggle. You see it there in verse 2? Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Proclaim to her that her long service has been completed. Hard service literally refers to military service. That's why the older translations will say her warfare has been uh, ended. That language fits the uh, situation in ancient Israel. They had uh, had a lot of warfare. And they had been uh, soundly defeated in their warfare. And that defeat had led to every other kind of hardship and every other kind of distress. But God sent Isaiah with, with with a message of comfort. God promises relief. And that relief will not come through more brutal warfare. Your hard service is done. I will give you peace. So did that prove true for ancient Israel? Well, yes and no. Already and not yet. They did not have to fight their way out of Babylon. To get back to their own land. Oh no, God sent them freely. Financed in fact by Cyrus the king's royal treasury. 
But once back in the land, they did face all kinds of trouble. The locals did not readily welcome them. They had a hard life trying to reclaim the land. The battle to be a righteous people was never over. Obviously, God's promise included things that they did not yet have. Even when they received some of it. And what about us? Has God's promise to end the struggle been realized by us? Your hard service is complete, is it? Well, yes and no. Jesus said, come to me, all you, are weary, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And millions of Christians will say, God kept that promise. I know, I know that. On the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. And believers everywhere know that, that God has finished his work and we've entered into eternal rest and there's something brand new and wonderful about what God has done for us. In a very real way, Christ Jesus has already brought us relief from our struggles. But in another sense, we do not yet know the end of our struggle. We American Christians talk about it as if it's all over. We actually have in the American church kind of a, a caricature of Christianity. That kind of, no matter what happens, kind of says, happy, 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 happy. That's how Christians, Christianity is, we say. It's not true. As every pastor knows, and as you probably know too, people are struggling terribly. Marriages are falling apart. We don't know what to do with our kids. Sometimes it's a crisis. The passions of our flesh run out of control. To say life is a struggle is to put it mildly. Some of us are on the verge of self-destruction. And frankly, as hard as our troubles may be, as hard as our struggles may be, they're dwarfed by this trouble of Christians in other places. I read this week an article in World Magazine about the Christians in Iraq. We've heard a lot about Iraq. We've liberated Iraq, right? Well, 20 years ago, there were 1.4 million Christians in Iraq. Now there are about 400,000 Christians in Iraq. A million Christians have been killed or driven from their homes. That's only one country. According to the Barnabas Fund, which ministers to persecuted Christians in Iraq and many other countries, one out of ten Christians is being persecuted for his faith today. One out of ten. And when we go to the Bible to find comfort in the face of such trouble, what do we find? We find warnings that our struggle is not over. We find that we've been called and sent out as witnesses, but then if you study a little bit, you learn that the word for witness is the word martyr. We're told to put on spiritual armor for a battle with the forces of darkness. We're called to endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. We're challenged to be courageous and faithful and to not shrink back. We're asked to be willing to lay down our lives for Christ's sake. And even when we're given a glimpse of heaven, of, of the glory to come in the book of Revelation, what do we find there? We find that under the altar are the souls of those who have been slain because of their testimony. And they're crying out to the Lord, How long, O Lord, how long 
must we wait for you judge and avenge our blood. God promises relief from the struggle, but folks, we don't have it all yet. Instead, Jesus tells us he will come again a second time. He will bring judgment on the wicked and then finally bring relief to those who are faithful, persevering saints. And so this morning I call you to be faithful, to wait patiently, to persevere, to fight the good fight, to keep the faith until the Lord appears in glory. God brings relief, but we don't have it all yet. But that doesn't mean we don't have any of it. Look at the second promise here in verse 2. God promises the sins of his people will be paid for. You see it there in the middle of the verse? Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, proclaim to her that her sin has been paid for. Now this would be a relief that would bring us great comfort, isn't it? Imagine if somehow all of the failures of our lives could be removed. Imagine if those ugly blotches on our conscience, those scars that no one else sees but which we never miss, could be erased. Imagine if by some miracle we could stand clean, forgiven before the Holy God. Imagine if we could look our Creator in the face and not be embarrassed. Or worse, not have Him turn away in disgust. Oh, imagine what, what a comfort it would be if all that could be possible. But you see, that's exactly the promised relief which Jesus came to bring. The scriptures are filled with statements to that effect. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, we read. Christ died for sins once for all the righteous, for the unrighteous, to bring us to God, we read. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus in another place. Now the people to whom Isaiah wrote these words, they could only understand that somehow God let them off and did not give them all that their sins deserve. They could never have comprehended how it was true. But to us, the gospel mystery, which has been hidden for ages, has now been revealed. The, the, the mystery that God became a man in the person of Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us. He lived without sin among us. And then he willingly went to the cross as the perfect substitute sacrifice. He paid in full the penalty for our sin. He died and endured God's judgment in my place. So that now I, along with all who depend on him, stand perfectly clean, forgiven, reconciled, restored. God has already fulfilled his promise to bring us relief from our sin. Well, God didn't just promise to zero out the sins of his people. There's even more. Look at the third promise. God promises to repay double blessings. It's there at the end of verse 2. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, proclaim to her that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. This was a very pointed promise in its historical context. Israel had been made to drink the bitter cup of God's wrath because of her sins. 
the country of Israel, the city of Jerusalem, had been ruthlessly destroyed. And God did not stop the carnage. He did not stop it. He let them bear the consequences of their idolatry. Many of the people were killed. Many more were carried back to Babylon as slaves. The consequences of their disobedience and their idolatry had been disastrous. God had chastened them severely and they had no reason to believe it would ever stop. Surely God had set himself against them. But God said, oh no, I have not utterly abandoned you. Though they had forgotten him, he had not forgotten them. God intended to bring them relief, to restore their broken down city, to rebuild the walls, to rebuild the temple, to prosper their land again. And that is exactly what God did. The way it all took place is God raised up a pagan king named Cyrus, a Persian king, and, and, and moved in Cyrus's heart, for whatever motives he had, to say to this whole people who were slaves in his land, you're free to go back home. And here's the money for you to do it. And so back they went. In waves, by the thousands. Led first of all by Sheshbazer, and then later by Ezra, and even later still by Nehemiah. God restored his ancient people to their own land. He enabled them to rebuild the city, and rebuild the temple, and rebuild the walls around the city. He enabled them to reinstitute the temple worship, and he blessed the land again. God brought them relief indeed. Double blessing beyond anything they could have expected in light of their terrible sin. But folks, Jesus by his coming has done even more than that. He has extended the scope of God's kingdom to include people from every tribe and nation and language and people and culture and clan on the face of the earth. People like you. People like me. He has brought restoration infinitely more profound than the rebuilding of old buildings. He has brought restoration of our souls. Reconciliation between us and God. And he's not only wiped away our sins. He's freed us from the condemnation and, and the burden of the law. He's given us a new heart and he's written his word. He's written his law deep on, us, on our hearts. He's clothed us with the righteousness of Jesus. He's given us a seat in the heavenly places where he is. Made us citizens of heaven. He's given us his spirit and entrusted to us the task of proclaiming, restoring grace to the whole world. All of that double blessing we already have. We already have. But Jesus is not finished yet. The day is coming when he will restore the whole cosmos. The curse of sin will be removed. Every tear will be wiped dry. We look forward to nothing less than a new heaven and a new earth. A new creation. For when God promises relief, it's double blessing. As we head into the holidays this year, we have only to read the newspaper or perhaps even look in our own life to see trouble. But this morning I proclaim comfort to you. Comfort for two reasons. Comfort because God cares about your trouble. 
and comfort because God has promised to bring relief. Now some of this he's already done when Jesus came to save us. For some of the other relief we must wait and persevere. But Christ will come again for not one word will fail of all of his promises. Comfort. Comfort my people, says the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Father, that you give us comfort in our trouble. We're so quick to believe that our trouble is uh, lost on you, that somehow you didn't notice. Oh, thank you, Father, that you always notice. Thank you, Father, that you uh, not only notice that you're in control, and we pray that we might see your great hand of providence and your great hand of grace in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.